And we have a lot to go to talk about that uh, as we continue down the timeline of history. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for our study of history, of your story. God, help us to see how you move and work through your creation, how you work through history, how your plans and your purposes are brought about through man and all of the things that you are doing through man and mankind, through what we call history. History is still being written today. We're part of your story. That means we're part of history. Even if our names are never known, Lord, our lives are here for such a time as this. This is our time of visitation, and none of us knows how you will use our life even in ways that we will never know until we get to glory, perhaps. But God, we are not here accidentally. We're not here without purpose. And you have a plan and a purpose for each one. And it is part of your story that we call history. Father, be glorified in our conversation tonight. Teach us and help us to recognize our proper place in your story and to give you the glory, because you are the author writing this glorious story. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, um, 27 B.C. So remember, Octavian wins the battle. He basically defeats Mark Antony and Cleopatra. It's not really the end of the battle. It kind of goes on. Um, for a while, but um, there's no doubt who's going to overcome in this. In 27 BC, Octavian becomes the supreme ruler of Rome. He doesn't do it by force. He doesn't ask for it. Um, it's basically handed to him on a silver platter because Rome had been through so much turmoil, so many civil wars, so many things that had been going on. And they had grown tired of the bloodshed. They'd grown tired of the infighting. And here comes this ruler. He, remember, he was one of three, one of the second triumvirate. And he kind of rose above the other two guys. The, the other powerful guy was Mark Antony. And Octavian's just defeated him and Cleopatra in Egypt. And now Octavian uh, is the guy. And the rule of Rome is literally handed to him. Um, and remember, Rome had rejected uh, the idea of a king or a dictator for centuries because they started out with a tyrant and they said, well, never be ruled by a tyrant again. And up until this point, Rome had never been ruled by a dictator. They always had two councils or what we would say two presidents and a senate once they became a republic. So they've been a senate for centuries now. Um, but Octavian came along at just the right time. Or maybe we should say that Octavian came along in God's time. Uh, there is no king that rises and there is no king that falls. There's not even state legislatures that rise or fall apart from the will of God. And certainly this man who ruled the world and actually did it quite well, uh, if you were part of Rome, if you were one of his enemies, you, you might disagree. In fact, one of his enemies says um, what, what Octavian calls, what, what's been called peace is basically uh, devastation. 
we're left with nothing, and Rome calls that peace. Well, it was peace because they left their enemies no means, no way to, uh, to oppose them. And so Octavian, um, remember Caesar, Julius Caesar, called himself dictator for life. And the irony is that Octavian became more of a dictator, more of a king, more of an absolute ruler than Julius Caesar could ever have dreamed of being. But Octavian didn't do it by force. He ruled differently. He worked closely with the Senate. He befriended them. He included them in his decisions and the things that he was doing. And as a result, the, the Senate basically just gave him the power so that Octavian could veto laws by himself. He could declare wars by himself. He could appoint men to positions of power by himself without consulting the Senate. He had power. Um, a few years after he became that supreme leader, he assumed the position of Pontifex Maximus, which is the high priest. He became not only the, he didn't call himself king or dictator. His favorite title was first citizen. But once he became, for all practical purposes, the supreme ruler of Rome, he also became the high priest of the ancient Roman religion. Um, at one point, the Senate declares him a god, and he resists it. He does not accept it. But it became kind of a tradition for the emperor to take this position as the high priest of the religion. And along with that, we're going to see that that was kind of laying the groundwork for the emperors in the future who would embrace the title of God and demand worship from their subjects. But that wasn't Octavian. In his wisdom, he rejected the title of king or dictator. Um, the Senate, not himself, but the Senate gave him the title Augustus, which means exalted one. So Augustus Caesar. Caesar was kept in the title of the Roman emperors in honor of Julius Caesar. Some would say Julius Caesar was the first emperor, but he really wasn't because Julius Caesar never led Rome when it was an empire. It was a republic. It was powerful. But it's under Octavian that Rome will become an empire. It's under Octavian that Rome will become what Daniel saw in his visions and what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed in his dream that Daniel interpreted. So in the book of Daniel... Six centuries, five centuries plus five, five centuries plus later, what Daniel saw, what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed as the king of Babylon, Octavian is ruling over that great and terrible beast with legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. But remember in that vision that we talked about that Nebuchadnezzar had the dream that was so disturbing to him in his dream Daniel tells him, O king, you saw a stone cut out without hands. And that stone became, it was cast down at the feet of that terrible image. And it crumbled. And all of those other kingdoms of gold, silver, bronze, and then iron and clay were crushed and ground together and became like chaff that the wind blew away. And what remained? There remained that stone that crushed them. 
And that stone, Daniel tells the king, grew into a mountain that filled the earth. And he says, this is the kingdom that shall never be overthrown. That is the kingdom we live in now. That is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. Christ is that stone that was cut out. Christ is that mountain that is growing to fill the entire earth. And with Octavian taking his position, he is ruling over that fourth empire that was seen in the, vig in the visions recorded for us in Daniel. And so the Senate gives him the title Augustus, which means exalted one. So he becomes Augustus Caesar or Caesar Augustus. And with the ascension of Augustus Caesar, so came the ascension of the Roman Empire, just as Daniel had prophesied. Octavian or Augustus Caesar would rule from about 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. And so he ruled uh, under 50 years. Now, he was in power longer than that. Remember, he was part of the first triumvirate. So it was just around 50 years, just under 50 years that Octavian had power in Rome. But it was from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. that he ruled rightly as the emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, here I've given you a big span of time, 27 B.C., to 180, I mean 180 AD. It's about 200 years. And in that 200 years, there was something called the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. Um, when you study different countries, for instance, Greeks' golden age uh, ended with the death of Socrates when at the end of the Peloponnesian War, the Spartans came and they basically didn't like what Socrates taught about democracy and the people ruling because the Spartans weren't into that. And, and so the death of Socrates marked the end of Greece's golden age. China had a golden age. Uh, most countries, most nations have what's called a golden age. And for Rome, in the Roman Empire, the golden age spanned from 27 B.C. to 180 A.D. So beginning with the reign of Augustus Caesar, that time period is called the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. And during the Pax Romana, the size of the Roman Empire was doubled. I wish I had a map for you, but I don't. But if you know your world uh, on, on a map and you can just picture right now North Africa, uh, the Middle East, uh, Asia and then Europe. So in the north, the Roman Empire stretched to Britain, uh, didn't quite make it all the way to Scotland because the Romans couldn't overthrow the Scottish tribes. So Hadrian built a wall there to keep them from coming down uh, and to separate them. So the, the north and Britain, all of Europe, um, basically, um, to Central Asia, over to... Um, what we would say today is Iran. They, the Roman Empire didn't really go into India per se. Um, and then it west it stretched to the Atlantic Ocean. And south, it covered North Africa. It was a big chunk of the world. 
And during the Pax Romana or the Roman peace, the, the empire reached its maximum um, limits in those areas I just described. Though Rome, the Roman Empire would last 500 years, the Pax Romana would only last 200 years. So with Marcus Aurelius, uh, when he died, the Pax Romana died in 180. He gave his, um, he gave his empire to Commodus, his son. Uh, if you've ever seen the great movie uh, Gladiator, it's not a true story, but the names are there out of history, Marcus Aurelius and Commodus. And Commodus in real history really was um, not a good guy, uh, which is one of the reasons why the Roman peace died when Marcus Aurelius died. Um, but it lasted 200 years, and in that 200 years, it paved the way for the spread of the gospel. This is the beauty, this is the power, this is the divine providence of what we call the Roman peace. So under Augustus Caesar, who started ro ruling the empire by himself basically in 27 BC, under Augustus Caesar, remember he, he reigned for under 50 years, and in those less than 50 years, between 40 and 50 years, he built over 50,000 miles of roads in the empire. So the, you know the old saying, all roads lead to Rome, and they really did. So in Rome, you know, there was the mile marker, and, and the roads led out from there across the empire, and the roads that Rome built led back to Rome. He so built tens of thousands of miles of roads across the empire. You can go to places today and those roads still exist. They were very good at uh, what they did. Uh, building projects were initiated to transform the city of Rome as well as other cities within the empire. Um, water aqueducts, you can still see the structures of those water aqueducts that Rome built all over uh, the empire to to send water to cities so that they could increase the population, build cities and expand their influence in um, trade and commerce. Roman power. Uh, remember in Daniel's vision, not just Nebuchadnezzar's, but Daniel had a vision and he saw that great and terrible beast that, that in Daniel's record in the book of Daniel, basically Daniel says it gave him nightmares because it was so terrible. And it ruled everything with an iron fist. Well, this is Rome. But that Roman power and that Roman law brought peace and economic prosperity and stability across the empire. So remember um, a couple of weeks ago, um, as, um, as the first triumvirate, remember with Julius Caesar, was part of that. And then you had uh, Pompey and you had, um, um, I can't remember the third guy's name, but, but one of those guys, uh, remember, they all did very important things and they were all recognized. And one of the things that happened was, uh, we've all heard of Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Because of the Disney movies. But the Pirates of the Mediterranean were a real thing. And so just prior to Octavian taking power, uh, Rome had defeated 
uh, it was Pompey who defeated the pirates of the Mediterranean. And so what had happened was you couldn't sail a ship uh, without being accosted by pirates. And so they weren't just stealing people's stuff. They were kidnapping people. They were looking for people who were of wealth and means and they would kidnap them, hold them for ransom. And so now with Rome's power and Rome's law, there's no more pirates. They were all defeated, all destroyed. Remember in one year, Pompey destroyed over 1,300 pirate ships and cleaned the Mediterranean of the pirate scourge. What does that mean? That means now goods and services can be traded, can be shipped across the empire, across the Mediterranean uh, without fear. And so the economic prosperity of Rome just exploded with all of this peace and all of this power came great prosperity and stability. And when people don't have to worry about getting up every day and surviving or wondering who's going to come and try to kill them, when you can go to bed in peace and you can wake up in peace and there's food and there's work for you to do and you're not trying to figure out how to provide, guess what? There's time for you to do other things like art and literature. And so the arts begin to flourish and literature begin to flourish. And Rome put a high value on education. And so all of this was laying the groundwork for what? It wasn't Octavian's plan, but it was absolutely God's plan. God was laying the groundwork for the spread of the gospel and the spread of Christianity. Because there was an educated populace. There was the means to, to take the good news on roads built for armies. But now they didn't need those armies like they did in the past. So now those roads were used for commerce and for spreading the gospel and Christianity. And all of those cities that were popping up everywhere as Rome grew, all of those cities were places where the gospel could be taken. And so the groundwork was being laid for the spread of the gospel through this Roman peace. And it was the foundation ordained by God that would impact not only the empire in that day, but the generations for centuries to come. And I would submit to you that even today, we are benefactors of this Roman peace and the foundation that was laid there um, much of our culture and our laws and the things that came out of that, we still reap the benefits of today. It was not a perfect 200 years, but those 200 years provided a foundation for the rise of Christianity and Western civilization and culture that still endures. It was put in place by divine providence as God knew how he would spread the gospel of Christ across the Roman Empire from road to road, city to city, region to region, and generation to generation. So think back about that vision that Daniel is interpreting and the vision that he sees of these four world empires. And those four world empires are conquered, they're crushed by the stone that grows into a mountain of an empire that shall never be overthrown. And so this is what we're seeing taking place. How did we get from this point in history to where we are today? 
Well, we got here by the gospel. We got here because it was God's plan. It was his divinely ordained plan and purpose. The gospel literally conquered the Roman Empire and the nations of the world, driving back the darkness with its glorious light. And we in our current time are a product of this continuing divine plan. Think about Rome. Think about Rome and all of its power. How could this no-name cult who were a bunch of atheists, that's what the Romans called them. They were atheists because they only believed in one God. And of course, everybody in Rome knew there were pantheons of gods. There were many gods. But these crazy Christians are atheists. They only believe in one God. And yet that crazy cult of Christianity overthrew the might of the Roman Empire and, and literally changed the world. When Paul wanted to go east up the coast of the Black Sea in what we know today as modern-day Turkey in Central Asia, God gave him a dream of a man in Macedonia across the Aegean Sea there calling him to come. Come to us, Paul. And instead of going east, Paul goes west. And when he crosses the sea, he takes the gospel to Europe. And from that point, the gospel spread across Europe, filled Europe, transformed Europe. When we get to that part of history, it's, it's amazing to see what the gospel did. But it didn't stop there in Europe. It crossed the Atlantic Ocean. It came to the shores of this unknown world, the new world, the Europeans called it. And we are the benefactors of it today. And it all started because Rome, building their empire, laid the groundwork for the spread of Christianity and the establishment of the church that would literally take the kingdom of God and overthrow the nations with it. It's still happening today. All right. Um, any thoughts about that? Any questions? We're at, we're at uh, 6 BC right now. So what we see today, I believe, is an increasing void of the gospel in our culture. So we have rejected God. We have rejected the gospel. The church has been relegated to irrelevant status. That's what the world believes. That's what we see in much of the practice of the church who says that we shouldn't get involved in politics. We shouldn't worry about politics other than praying for our politicians but that realm is not part of our realm. We need to stay in the spiritual realm. That's called dualism. And God is not a dualistic God. God is other than us. He's other than his creation. But there's no part of our life that is not impacted by God, his kingdom, and the gospel. There's no part of life that Jesus is not Lord over. This is a myth we create in our own minds, the secular, sacred divide. God doesn't see the world as secular and sacred. 
The world, all of it, and everything in it is his. And we have been commanded to go and to take, take dominion, subdue it, and fill it with his image. And the Bible tells us that that's going to happen. Now, will it happen in our lifetime? I, I don't think so, but that's not the point. The point is, in our lifetime, we have our part to play to make it happen as much as we can as we obey God, as we take the gospel, as we make disciples and spread his light. So with the void that we see today, the void of the gospel in our culture, we see darkness advancing once again. And if you were to compare the sin that we see in our culture today to the paganism that existed in, in the days that we're studying right here, in the days before the birth of Christ, and in, in immediately following the birth of Christ, before the church begins to, to take dominion and spread across the globe, those pagan gods and those pagan practices 2,000 years ago would look very similar to, to many of the things we're seeing in our culture today. And that's not by accident. That's because we have rejected God and his gospel. And where there is a rejection of that, there's a void there. And something's going to fill that void. If we don't fill it with God, if we don't fill it with the gospel, if we don't fill it with the things of God, then the things of darkness are going to come in and they're going to fill the void. And that's what we see happening. So what, what do we do? Well, history lays out, this is why we're looking at the historical timeline of world history and biblical history, but it's all his story. It's all, his, it's all history. It's all, it's all God's plan. It's all what God's doing. But history lays out for us how to conquer empires of darkness through the power of God's word and his gospel. And if we'll learn how they were conquered before, we can conquer them again today. In 7 BC, or somewhere thereabouts, the angel Gabriel, who foretold the coming of the Messiah to Daniel, recorded in Daniel 9, 24 and 25, that angel Gabriel appears to Zacharias. Zacharias is a priest performing his service, his priestly service in the temple. And the angel Gabriel appears to Zacharias and announces that Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, and they're both very advanced in age, kind of think Abraham and Sarah, that they're going to have a child in their old age and they're to call him John. Now, if you remember the story recorded here for us in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 22. Zacharias is, is in disbelief and he asks the angel, how will I know this is really going to happen? And the angel says, I'm Gabriel. I came from God. You don't question me. You're going to be mute now until your son is born and it's time to uh, circumcise him and name him. Then your mouth will be released. And that's exactly what happened. And so this is the father of John, John the Baptist, who was the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. It was John who would prepare the way of the Lord. Then in 6 BC, 
Six months after John the Baptist was conceived, the angel Gabriel again appears to the Virgin Mary, who's betrothed to Joseph. So they're, mar- they're betrothed, not married. Back in that day, being betrothed was just like being married, except you had not consummated the marriage yet. They had not come together in a physical relationship, but they were promised to one another, just as promised, just as committed as if they went through a modern day wedding ceremony with us because they basically did when they became betrothed. And so Mary is betrothed to Joseph, but the angel announces that she's going to have a child by the power of God, and this child will be the son of God. Now Mary asks the angel, how is this possible since I have never known a man? And the angel didn't chastise Mary the way he did Zacharias because Mary had a legitimate question there. She was a virgin. She had never been with a man, and she could not understand how she could become pregnant never having known a man. And so the angel explained to her what was going to happen. She'd be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and God would cause that child, that holy child, his son, to be conceived in her, and she would carry him and bring him to fruition and birth him. Then... Somewhere between 5 and 4 B.C., before Jesus is born, Caesar Augustus orders that all the Romans in the world should be taxed. In other words, he says, it's time for a tax increase. And I need to know how many people I've got in my empire, so he orders a census of the world. Pretty daunting task, if you ask me. Um, And this, though, this taxation of the world is what caused Joseph to have to travel back to Bethlehem, his city, the city of his childhood. He had to go back there and be counted as part of the empire. And it just so happened, or maybe it didn't just so happen, maybe it was God's divine plan that Mary is very pregnant with this holy child. And she is going to birth this baby anytime. And as Mary and Joseph travel back to Bethlehem and they get there, Jesus, the Son of God, is born in the fullness of time. Born to the Virgin Mary in the city of Bethlehem. Matthew 1, 25, 2. Verse 1, verse 5, Galatians 4, 4, Paul even says in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son. Mary and Joseph wrapped him in swaddling cloths because there was no room in the inn. Luke 2, 7, the birth of the Savior was announced by an angel of the Lord in the heavenly host to shepherds out in the field keeping their flocks. Forget kings, forget Augustus Caesar, the exalted one. The true exalted one has been born. And his birth wasn't announced to the rich and famous and the powerful, but to poor shepherds out in the field, keeping their flocks. And the baby wasn't born in a palace, but in a stable, in a manger of the most humble means. Then on the eighth day, he's taken to be circumcision, given the name Jesus as foretold by the angel, Luke 2.21. 
wise men from the east are guided by a star and they come in search of this baby. They go to Herod first and ask, where's this king? Now, how did they know there was a king? Well, there was a prophecy. It was all the way back to the earliest books of the Bible that the scepter would not depart from Judah, that a king would be born and rise up. Now, how did these wise men know that there would be a king born? Well, we go back into our history and remember in 606 B.C., because of Judah's sin, because they would not repent and heed the voice of God and the word of the prophets. They wouldn't listen to Jeremiah. They wouldn't listen to Ezekiel. They wouldn't listen to any of the prophets that God sent to them. And so God sent the Babylonians in 606 and carried away many of their people, carried them away captive to Babylon, but they left the city intact, left the temple intact. But Judah didn't learn and they continued to rebel and they wouldn't listen to the prophets. So 20 years later, Nebuchadnezzar sends his army again and he destroys the temple, destroys the city and all of Judah, except those that Babylon didn't think were worth taking back with them. Everybody else was taken back into captivity. And when Ezra is sent back by Cyrus, the Persian king, to rebuild the temple. And he, he leads a little over 40,000, I think 42,000 Jews with him. You realize that the vast majority of Jews did not return to Judah. Nehemiah leads another group later. But the majority of Jews, by that time, they stay in Babylon. So they, they have lives there. They have businesses there. These wise men that came looking for Jesus, I'm not saying they were Jews, but because of the Jewish influence, because they knew the Jewish scriptures, they knew the prophecies of the Jews, they had been looking for the promised Messiah. They had the records of Daniel's prophecy and Daniel laid out when the Messiah would come pretty much to the date. And so these wise men were aware of the prophecies and they were watching and they saw the signs and they followed the star and they come to Jesus bearing gifts to give to this king. It didn't matter to them that he was a baby. They knew who he was and they gave him gifts as the king that he was. Jeff, can you go back a second? Did you say like 600? 606 BC was the first uh, Babylonian invasion. So they're like passing down that oral tradition? Absolutely. And written tradition. The Babylonian Talmud is, is uh, one, one of the, the things they use to translate the Septuagint into Greek. Yes, they had the written and the oral tradition since that time. Yeah. So then um, the wise men come. Then on the 40th day after her delivery, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to Jerusalem to present him in the temple before God to, fill, to fulfill the law of the firstborn. Remember, the firstborn that opens the womb was to be sacrificed to God. So 
when you have your cows, your sheep, your goats, the firstborn goat, sheep, cow has got to be sacrificed to God. Um, God doesn't um, expect us to sacrifice our children in that sense, but he expects us to dedicate those children to him. And that's what Mary and Joseph were doing. It was the firstborn son, and by the law given to, to the Jews by God, that firstborn son had to be presented to God in the temple. And so after the days of cleansing, Mary goes to the temple and she offers up uh, either two pigeons or two turtle doves because they were poor. They, they couldn't afford a lamb, so she offers up two birds. And it was at this time that Simeon and Anna, both elderly, very elderly, had been waiting, had been promised by God that they would see the Messiah. Remember, Simeon sees the baby Jesus and, and he rejoices and says, finally, God, your promise has been fulfilled. I, I see the hope of Israel. I see the Messiah. And so they publicly acknowledge who Jesus is. Joseph and Mary then returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth, Luke 2.39, after they carried out all of these things in fulfillment of the law. And then an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, because remember, the wise men go to Herod, and he says, when you find the baby, come back and let me know where he is, because I want to worship him too. And they said, okay. And when they find the baby, an angel appears to them and says, don't. Go back to Herod, go back home another way. And so they left. Well, after they never come back, Herod kind of figures out that they're not going to come and tell him where the baby is. But he has not forgotten that a king has been born. Now, we talked about Herod. Do you remember what Herod did when he took power? He killed almost his whole family. I mean, he killed his, he killed his mother. He killed his... His, he killed his brothers, he killed his in-laws, he killed anyone he thought was a threat to his rule. Later on, he's going to kill even more. And so when he hears word that a, a king is born in his realm, he's like, uh-uh, we got to get rid of this king. And so the angel appears to Joseph in the dream, warns him to flee to Egypt, take Mary and the baby with you, and stay there until the threat is passed, until Herod's death. Herod, thinking the child is still in Bethlehem, because that's the last he heard, has all children two years and under killed. And he calculates the age of the children from when the star was first seen and when the wise men came and appeared to him. So some time has passed. But Herod is thinking he's trying to secure his position by having all these children killed. Then in 4 BC, Herod the Great dies. Now, he had ruled for 37 years. Now, what do you think the people did when Herod died? Well, Herod knew what they were going to do when he died. They knew he was, they were going to have a party because he knew the people despised him. And he said, he, he put all these people in this building called the, the Hippodrome, and he put them in there as prisoners, and he says, when I die, first thing you do is go to the Hippodrome and you kill everybody in there so that it will cause the people to have to mourn. They're not going to mourn for me, but they're going to mourn for all those people that died. And then it won't look like the people are celebrating my death. What would you call that? 
besides wickedness. I mean, that is what you call pride. Um, pride doesn't even, it seems like an understatement. It's just, it is wickedness. But his sister released the people from the Hippodrome instead of um, executing them. And uh, when Herod died, Jerusalem and the people of Judea and Galilee had a big party uh, because they were very happy that he was no longer ruling over them. Octavian said of Herod, it would be better to be Herod's sow than Herod's son because Herod had his sons killed. The people were instead released from the Hippodrome after Herod died and of his death, it is said, Herod died who hated all wise men. And any man he deemed wise, he pretty much killed them if he suspected them of anything except absolute loyalty. 3 BC, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in Egypt and says it's safe to go back. Now, uh, Herod had a will and in his will, he divided his kingdom up. Remember, he was the king of the Jews. That was the title the Roman Senate gave to him. But upon his death, Herod rewrote his will before he died, and he, he split everything up. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but upon his death, Joseph is told by the angel it's safe to go back. But when Joseph gets back to Israel, he realizes that Herod um, Archelaus, one of Herod's son, is reigning there where Herod was. And he knows that he's an evil person too. So he goes back to Nazareth where Herod Antipas is ruling. And he was not not like um, Archelaus. And so Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus go to Nazareth. And, and Jesus grows up in Nazareth. And this is why he's called Jesus of Nazareth. He wasn't born in Nazareth, but that's where he grew up. Archelaus struggles to keep his kingdom. So all this time, there's all kinds of things happening across Judea and Syria, and, and there's conflict. Rome is ruling. It's nothing major, no major wars, but it's, the Jews are seditious. They're, they hate the Herods. Uh, they hate the Romans, and so there's this constant... Um, warfare and rebellion kind of taking place. Herod uh, Archelaus is not a just man. He's not a good man. And around the time of Passover in, um, in 3 BC, a group of Jews complained to um, Herod Archelaus. Uh, and he couldn't appease them, so he just killed them. So what had happened before under Herod the Great, a group of seditious Jews, Herod the Great had this big golden eagle placed over the gate of the temple. And the Jews hated it. They thought it was idolatrous. They didn't know why Herod had an eagle there. You know, the eagle was the symbol of Rome. It's what was on the Roman standards. Herod had this big eagle put up there at the gate of the temple. And so a bunch of uh, Jews got together to tear down this golden eagle and they got caught, and uh, Herod the Great basically burns them alive, kills them. Um, and it's friends of these people that are coming to Herod Archelaus complaining about something 
concerning the families of these men who survived. And Herod uh, can't make any peace with them. And so he sends his cavalry in and that Passover around the temple in 3 BC, 3,000 Jews are killed by Herod's army. And the rest of the people flee to the mountains. And these seditions continued to inflame the Romans. They were constantly dealing with these rebellious Jews. And so Archelaus travels to Rome and... um, to complain to Caesar, actually he was called by, to Rome by Caesar because the Jews had gone to Augustus and said, Herod is unjust and he's not ruling the way he should be. And Augustus had warned Herod that he needed to be just in his rule, that he needed to be basically honest. You know, I'm not expecting you to... to, to to treat them with kid gloves, but you need to be a just judge and exercise the laws of Rome justly. And Archelaus was not doing that, so Caesar calls him back and he um, exiles him to Gaul. Remember where Gaul is? Gaul is modern-day France. So Rome is in Italy. So Caesar Augustus exiles Herod Archelaus across the Swiss Alps Uh, across the Pyrenees Mountains into Gaul and says, don't ever come back. Stay there. And that's where he stayed. So what happens then? Well, then Caesar kind of divides that region among Herod's family. But we're getting ready to see a change in in, uh, the way Rome rules that region of the world. Now, This brings us to um, from B.C. to A.D. So I'm sure you guys know this, but I just put this in your notes anyways. B.C. is is the abbreviation for before Christ. Um, It's an English abbreviation uh, used to show that a year or century comes before the year in which Jesus Christ was born. Uh, You'll see this uh, B.C.E. or C.E. common error. Uh, You see that very often now because people want to be politically correct and they don't really believe uh, in Jesus. We don't know if Jesus was a really historical figure, so we'll call it the common error. Uh, Well, what marked the beginning of the common error? What what marks before the common error? When When was common error born? Who was the mother of common error? Who was the father of common error? You see what I'm saying? It's Christ. Christ defines our history. Christ defines our calendars. Now, there were lots of calendars, and the Jews still use a different calendar than this, but most of the world today uses the Gregorian calendar. The Julian calendar was started by Julius Caesar in about 46 BC. That's one of the things Julius Caesar did. He reformed the calendar. And he got it pretty close, but it wasn't close enough so that the Gregorian calendar, you know, Julius Caesar had 365.25, but you end up with extra days as you go. And he did base that on a solar calendar, 
But now the Gregorian calendar, but the point here is A.D. is Anno Domini or in the year of our Lord. So what is this? This this is 2023 in the year of our Lord. We're still in the year of our Lord because Jesus is Lord. He is the living Savior. He's the living Lord and King. He's not dead. He's not a past tense. He is a present and eternal tense. And so A.D. marks the years after the year in which Jesus Christ was born. So we go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. There's no zero. It's 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. Now, when we get to 3 A.D., the sons of Augustus, Lucius and Gaius, die in service to Rome. Augustus has always wanted to adopt Tiberius. Now, we're, you, you read Augustus Caesar in the Bible, and, and he was the Caesar, he was the emperor at the birth of Jesus all the way up till the teenage years of Jesus. But who became the emperor of Rome after Augustus? It is... Tiberius Caesar. So Tiberius Caesar was the ruler of Rome during the life and death of Jesus. Tiberius was considered like a son to Augustus, but he would never adopt him as a, as a son. Remember Augustus, Octavian, who was his father? Well, Julius Caesar was his adopted father. And what Julius Caesar did was adopt his great nephew and make Octavian his son and raised him like a son. Octavian wanted to do that for Tiberius, but he didn't because he had two biological sons and he did not want to inflame their jealousy. And Tiberius even removed himself from influence in the Roman Empire for a time because he didn't want to inflame the jealousy. And so for a number of years, he just kind of is, is in obscurity out here. It wasn't anyone's plan. It just happened. And, and it happened that in the same year, 3 AD, Lucius and Gaius both died in service to Rome. And Augustus had always wanted to adopt Tiberius, but because of jealousy of his two sons, he didn't do it. But now with Gaius and Lucius dead, Tiberius, Caesar would now one day succeed the throne of Augustus. It was in this year, 3 AD, that the people of Rome made Augustus a god. But he did not approve. In fact, he forbade it by an edict. He had an edict issued forbidding that he be called a god. He could have easily accepted that and took full advantage of it, but he didn't do it. But we're going to see that not too many future Caesars would resist that temptation the way Octavian did. It was in 6 AD. I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself a while ago. Uh, 6 AD that Archelaus is uh, exiled to Gaul. In 7 AD, the rule of Archelaus was confiscated and annexed by Quirinius of Syria. Remember, we heard about Quirinius when the, the uh, census was taken. 
Quirinius wasn't the ruler of that area, but he was a major governor, ruler in that region, and Caesar depended upon him to oversee that census. And now it's that Quirinius of Syria that comes in and confiscates and annexes the rule of Archelaus. And he raises taxes. And this new taxation caused a sedition to arise. There was a guy named Judas, the Galilean, who rose up and led many people away. Um, I think I left part of this sentence off. He, he, he was a would-be Messiah thought, who thought he would rally the people and overthrow Rome. It didn't work out. He was killed and the people following him were dispersed. You read about this Judas the Galilean in Acts 5.37 when, when Gamaliel says of the Christians before the, in, within the Sanhedrin, he says, men of the Sanhedrin, remember Judas the Galilean who rose up and led many people away and he was killed and they were dispersed. If this is not of God, if this sect is not of God, the same thing will happen to them. They'll just fade into obscurity. But it was a warning he also gave them, be careful because if this is of God, then we don't want to tamper with what God is doing. Then there was a guy named Sadok, a Pharisee, who rose and stirred up the people. So Judas and Sadok, both of these um, seditious leaders... They disturbed the Romans in their day, but they did more than that. They kind of laid a groundwork for future rebellions. So this seed of rebellion, this seed to overthrow the Roman Empire, never went away. <clears throat> and it would bring great calamity on, on Rome and the Jews in the future. And we're going to see it. We see it in the record of Scripture. And we see it in the record of history. <clears throat> then Augustus sent a guy named guy by the name of Copanius to be the first governor of Judea. Now it's not that Herod didn't still have a position, because when we get to Jesus, oh man, I'm out of time. When we get to Jesus, I could tell by the way my wife was looking at me. When we get to Jesus, we're going to read about Herod. So Herod's still around, but now Augustus sends a governor. This is important because we all know one of the Roman governors by name, probably the only one you know by name. Do you know what his name is? Pontius Pilate. And so, but Copanius was the first Roman governor of Judea, but he would not be the last. All right, we're going to stop right there. And... Um, I'm sorry, I um, ran a little bit late here.